When I first visited Jerusalem in 1962, these steps were 25 feet below the present surface, completely lost to modern eyes. All over the country, the past is being exposed to the present by the spade of the archaeologist and equally by the deciphering of ancient texts by the historian. I have been back to Israel and Jordan dozens of times as a researcher and scholar. The Jesus dynasty is a new historical investigation of Jesus, his royal family, and the birth of Christianity. It proposes an original version of Christianity, long lost and forgotten, but one that can be reliably traced back to the founder, Jesus himself. There is a sense in which I might call it the greatest story never told. It will thrill and excite many, upset and anger others, but also challenge its listeners of whatever persuasion to honestly weigh evidence and consider new possibilities. A Tale of Two Tombs Many of the great archaeological discoveries of our time have been accidental. It is as if there's some mysterious hidden axiom at work. What we most hope to discover we seldom find, and what we least expect can suddenly appear. The appearance of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 from caves in the Judean desert, or the uncovering of the first century A.D. skeleton of a crucified man by a road-building crew in Jerusalem in 1968. When it comes to archaeology, it seems that time and chance are equal partners with careful planning and method. I learned this firsthand late one Wednesday afternoon on June 14, 2000, while hiking with five of my students in the Hinnom Valley, just south of the old city of Jerusalem in an area known as Akel Dama. We'd been in Israel for two weeks excavating a newly discovered cave a few miles west of Jerusalem at a place called Suba, which has the earliest drawings related to John the Baptist. The University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where I am a professor, was the academic sponsor of the dig. I was co-director of the excavation with Dr. Shimon Gibson, an Israeli archaeologist. It was our second season at the Cave of John the Baptist, as we'd come to call it. We decided to do a bit of archaeological sightseeing as a break from a hard day of digging in the summer heat. The Hinnom Valley is an area thick with ancient rock-hewn tombs just a stone's throw from the arid village of Silwan. Many of the tombs are open, having been robbed and emptied centuries ago, but a significant number are still sealed and intact, covered with topsoil and preserved for the past 2,000 years. On that late evening, Shimon Gibson offered to take us into some of the open tombs to give us an idea of what Jewish burial was like in the time of Jesus. We finished our tour of half a dozen tombs about 7 p.m., as we were making our way back to our cars, one of my students pointed down the hillside below where we'd parked. The entrance to a freshly opened tomb was visible in the setting sunlight. Moist soil was piled about the entrance, and we could see fragments of broken ossuaries scattered all about. These were the stone bone boxes that Jews of the first century used to hold the bones of the deceased. As we approached, we could see that the rectangular entrance to the tomb was clearly exposed, measuring about a square meter. We stuck our heads inside. It was pitch dark, but the damp, musty smell of such a space, sealed from outside air for 2,000 years, filled our nostrils. Tomb robberies in this area are relatively rare. 
Perhaps two or three occur over the span of a decade. The Israelis have a special armed unit responsible for protecting antiquities, and the desecrating of an ancient tomb is a serious crime. Judging from the broken ossuaries at the entrance and the fresh soil piled around, the tomb in front of us had most likely been robbed the night before. Shimon Gibson alerted the Israeli authorities on his cell phone, and with their permission, he and his assistant, Rafi Lewis, and a couple of my students went inside to survey the damage while the authorities were on their way. I waited outside with the other standing watch. It was rapidly growing dark. The group inside disappeared, and after a while we could not hear them anymore. The minutes ticked by. Those of us outside began to wonder if we should go in and find the others. Suddenly we heard the excited shouting of another of my students as he scrambled toward the upper chamber. Dr. Tabor, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Gibson has found something very important. He told us that the tomb had three chambers or levels, and in the lowest chamber in a burial niche carved into the wall, there were remains of a skeleton with portions of its cloth burial shroud. Gibson eventually surfaced and explained to us the remarkable implications of this discovery. Jewish burial at the time of Jesus was carried out in two distinct stages, a primary and a secondary burial. First, the body was washed and anointed with oils and spices and wrapped in a burial shroud. It was then placed on a stone shelf or in a niche known as a loculus, carved into the bedrock wall of the tomb. The body was allowed to decompose and desiccate for as long as a year. When mostly bones were left, the remains were gathered and placed into an ossuary or bone box, usually carved from limestone. Often the name of the deceased was carved or scratched on the side into the stone. Some ossuaries held the bones of more than one individual, and some were inscribed with more than one name. These rectangular lidded boxes varied in size, but typically they were long enough for the femur or thigh bone and wide enough to hold the skull. Ossuaries were commonly used in Jewish burials in and around Jerusalem from about 30 B.C. to A.D. 70, a hundred-year period surrounding the lifetime of Jesus. They regularly turn up through foiled tomb robberies or accidentally as a result of construction projects. When a tomb has been so violated, the archaeologists are called in to record what they can. The artifacts, including the ossuaries, are cataloged and stored, and the bones are promptly turned over to the Orthodox Jewish community for reburial. Thousands of ossuaries have been found in Israel, especially in the rock-hewn tombs around Jerusalem. But finding a skeleton still laid out in a loculus and wrapped in its burial shroud was a first. For some reason, the family of the deceased had not returned after the primary burial to place their loved one more permanently in an ossuary. Organic materials such as cloth normally could not survive outside a desert area, and with Jerusalem in the mountains, with its damp winters and rainfall, such a find seemed unbelievable. The tomb had probably been undisturbed since the first century A.D. However, Gibson did allow the possibility that maybe this particular skeleton with the burial shroud had been placed there from a later period, perhaps from the Crusades, accounting for its preservation. The Israelis from the Israel Antiquities Authority arrived. We spent the rest of the night removing and labeling every bit of the fragile remaining cloth.
Our team returned to the States a few days later in a precious sample of the cloth, hastily licensed for scientific export, was shipped off to the laboratory at the University of Arizona in Tucson for carbon-14 dating. It was in this lab back in 1988 that the Shroud of Turin had been dated to A.D. 1300, demonstrating it to be a medieval forgery. As fate would have it, the scientist I contacted in Tucson, Dr. Douglas Donahue, was the individual who supervised the carbon-14 tests on the Turin Shroud. I did not tell Donahue anything about the provenance of our sample. Just after noon on August 9th, Donahue reached me by phone with the results of the tests. The Akeldama Shroud had been scientifically dated to the first half of the first century A.D., precisely to the time of Jesus. Donahue faxed me a copy of his report, and in his cover letter he closed with an interesting observation. Our friends from Shroud of Turin days would certainly have appreciated a result like this. I will be interested to know the ramifications of this result. At the time we'd just begun to study the tomb and what remained of its contents, none of us could have imagined the far-reaching ramifications that would come to light. The tomb had been strewn with hundreds of fragments of broken ossuaries and scattered bones. Only one large, heavy ossuary was left intact, but it had no inscription. What the tomb robbers typically do is remove only a few of the finest ossuaries, preferably some with clear or interesting inscriptions, so as not to flood the antiquities market where they hope to carry out clandestine, illegal sales to collectors. They purposely break the rest and carry out only the pieces that have the inscriptions, since such fragments can be easily sold and draw little attention. Shimon Gibson.